If you've ever been to or watched a Scottish team competing in an international sporting tournament, you'll probably have heard the rousing, unofficial Scottish anthem, Flower of Scotland. It celebrates the most famous victory of the Scots over the English. On the 24th of June, 1314, Robert the Bruce and his outnumbered Flower of Scotland faced Edward II's mighty English army and sent them homeward to think again. In truth, uh, the majority of Edward's army weren't sent homeward from Scotland. They, they never got off the battlefield alive. And the Scots still savour this victory at the Battle of Bannockburn. The victory at Bannockburn not only ensured Scottish independence from England for the next 300 years, but it instilled a deep sense of pride and consciousness in the Scottish nation, which resonates to this very day as you can hear when Flower of Scotland is belted out at Hampden Park or Murrayfield. But how did Scotland and England stories get to this bloody point? That's what we're going to find out in this episode. Now, the last time we talked about Scotland was back in talk number eight, when I explained the birth of Scotland as a nation. And we ended that story with Malcolm Canmore defeating Macbeth. Yes, Shakespeare's Macbeth, to become King, of, uh, King Malcolm III of Scotland. And Malcolm himself was King of Scotland in 1066 when William the Conqueror invaded England. Malcolm actually had close links to the Anglo-Saxon royal family and he was married to Edward the Confessor's niece, Margaret of Wessex. Margaret's brother was Edgar the Aetheling, who, if you remember from talk number nine, was actually proclaimed King of England after Harold's defeat at Hastings. However, Edgar was never crowned and soon afterwards he actually submitted to William, who went on to become King William I of England. I know, I know what you're thinking. I thought this was about Scotland, not England. But you see, you're falling into this old trap of viewing this, this rivalry as sort of black and white, whereas actually there's a lot of grey in the histories between England and Scotland. As you're going to discover, the royal families and even the nobility of Scotland and England were a lot more closely intertwined than Mel Gibson in Braveheart would have you believe. First off, you know, Malcolm of Scotland and Margaret of Wessex's daughter, Edith, went on to marry King Henry I of England. That's William the Conqueror's son. Henry and Edith's daughter, Matilda, fought a civil war in England with King Stephen, which you can hear about in another one of my talks entitled Anarchy and Lionheart. And their grandson, through Matilda, was Henry II, the first of the Plantagenet kings of England, from whom our current queen, Elizabeth II, is descended. And thus, because of that marriage between Henry I of England and Edith of Scotland, whose mother was Margaret of Wessex, the Queen can trace her lineage right back to the ancient House of Wessex, you know, King Alfred the Great, and even further back. Anyway, upon Malcolm's death in 1093, a dynastic civil war broke out in Scotland between his son from his first marriage, Duncan, and Malcolm's brother, Donald, who Shakespeare refers to as Donald Bain in Macbeth. Another one for you. Despite being crowned king at the traditional coronation venue of Scottish kings at Schoon outside uh, Perth, Duncan was killed in a battle fighting Uncle Donald, who now ruled Scotland as Donald III. However, Donald, Donald Bain, was already in his 60s and he only survived three more years before he died, leaving just a daughter. 
And as we've already seen in my talk on Stephen and Matilda down in England, women were definitely only to be considered rulers as a very last resort, i.e. there were no suitable men. And there were lots of suitable men at this juncture in Scottish history. In fact, there were three sons from Malcolm Canmore and his second wife, Margaret of Wessex. All three were to wear the crown of Scotland, Edgar, Alexander and finally David. It was David who, as David I, invaded England in support of his niece Matilda during her civil war with Stephen. And if you recall from one of my previous talks, you know, David sort of helped himself to a large part of Northern England in that process. Lands that were still in his possession when he died in 1153, age 69. The crown passed to his grandson, young Malcolm IV, and it was Malcolm IV who uh, Henry II lent on uh, and gave lands to in England in return for giving up that north, northern England and going back across up into Scotland. Malcolm was to die childless and the crown therefore passed to his brother, William, known to history as William the Lion. William the Lion's reign of 59 years is only surpassed in Scottish history by King James VI, King James I of England. That's a little history fact for you for your next pub quiz. William's son, Alexander II, signed the Treaty of York with the English, which effectively established the border between England and Scotland, which we recognise today. It almost hasn't changed in all those hundreds of years. So apart from David I's foray into Northern England during the Anarchy, Scotland had sort of been out of England's orbit for well over a century. But that was about to change, and for several reasons. First off, Alexander's son, Alexander III, original, hey, uh, married Margaret, the daughter of Henry III of England. So once more, we have the royal families of Scotland and England linked together. And when Henry III, down there in England, finally died, he was succeeded by Margaret's brother, Edward, Edward I of England, Longshanks. Now, we've come across him in a previous talk too. It was Edward I who snuffed out Welsh independence. Whilst Edward was enlarging English power in Wales, Alexander was enlarging his own kingdom of Scotland. In the 1260s, he delivered a crushing defeat to the Norwegians at the Battle of Largs in the, uh, Firth of, uh, in the Firth of Clyde. And in the ensuing peace treaty between Norway and Scotland, he wrested the, the Western Isles, along indeed with the Isle of Man, from Norse control. Now, only Orkney and Shetland Islands in the very far north were not part of what we now know as Scotland. Just three years after Edward's ascension in England, his sister, Margaret, up in Scotland died. That was in itself wasn't a problem because Alexander and his brother-in-law in England were on amicable terms. But then in 1286, everything was turned on its head. Alexander died at the age of just 45. Unfortunately, his two sons had already predeceased him, as had his daughter, who was married to the King of Norway. Both those sons had died childless, but at least his daughter, called Margaret, and her husband, Eric II of Norway, had a child, a daughter, aged three, Margaret, maid of Norway. Remember what I said earlier, that women were the only candidates for the crown as a last resort? Well, this was a last resort. Eric of Norway was wary of letting his three-year-old daughter travel to Scotland, uh, not surprising really, as it was far from certain that 
all those far-off male relatives in the old Scottish royal family would actually submit to her. A girl aged just three. This was prime time for ambitious noblemen with a tiny bit of blue bud in their veins to possibly have a tilt at the crown. And then Margaret's great uncle, Edward I of England, stepped in. He would support her claim to the throne of Scotland. Let us not forget that Edward was not only king of Scotland's very strong and wealthy southerly neighbour, but he was a formidable warrior in his own right. You know, he was the victor over Simon de Montfort at Evesham. He was the conqueror of Wales. He'd been on crusade. His intervention had the desired effect. All those male contenders backed down and accepted Margaret, maid of Norway, as their lady. Six guardians, because she was only three, six guardians of the realm were appointed, a bit like regency councils that we see at different times down in England, uh, when there's a child king. And a deal was hammered out that Margaret, maid of Norway, would also become engaged to Edward's son, the future Edward II. And the treaty specifically stated that Scotland, nevertheless, would remain an independent country. Finally, with all that hammered out and in place, in 1290, Margaret set out from, from Norway to her new kingdom and died en route. Scotland was thrown into chaos and obviously the wheels had fallen off Edward's plan to join the royal houses of Scotland and England. There was no obvious candidate now for the throne. In fact, over 13 competitors entered the ring, including briefly King Eric of Norway himself. A long shot? Well, <laughs> as you'll see in a moment, not really when you look at the rest. To find a successor, you had to go back to Alexander's grandfather, William the Lion, who had died 76 years beforehand. William the Lion did indeed have a younger brother, David, Earl of Huntingdon. Uh, and there it says it in his own right, that was an English title that this Scottish member of the Scottish royal family had and lands in England. David, Earl of Huntingdon, of course, was long dead, but he had had two daughters, uh, Margaret and younger sister, Isabel. Margaret, the eldest sister, had married an English nobleman, again another tie-in, and they'd had a daughter, who married another English nobleman, John Balliol, Lord of Barnard Castle in northeast of England, and incidentally founder of Balliol College at Oxford University. And they had a son named, just like his father, John, John Balliol. By the laws of primogentia, which is the succession passing through the firstborn, John Balliol had a far-off but the strongest claim to the throne of Scotland. But he didn't have the only claim. If you recall, David, Earl of Huntingdon, had another daughter, Isabel. And she'd married another nobleman, the fourth Lord of Annandale, Robert Bruce. Now, don't get excited. This isn't the Robert Bruce you've heard about in the cave with the spider um, or at Bannockburn. The one you've heard about is actually his, or their, great-grandson. Also, Robert Bruce, or Robert the Bruce. And these two far-off members of the royal family were the best two candidates. Can you imagine what some of the rest were like? Others included um, descendants of illegitimate children of William the, of Lion, William the Lion, and even one contender uh, was descended from Donald III. Remember him? Donald Bain, Malcolm Campbell's brother? This horse trading now became known as something in Scottish history called the Great Cause. And the six guardians of the realm finally asked a neutral Edward I, their powerful southern neighbour, to adjudicate. 
The English king called a Scottish parliament to meet in York, in England, where he demanded that they acknowledge him as their overlord, who had the right to choose their king. And somewhat reluctantly, because of the situation they were in, they agreed. Edward then appointed a commission of nobles who would hear the competing cases. And in 1292, Edward, sitting as judge, decided that John Balliol was the best candidate, the most legitimate candidate, and the rightful heir to the Kingdom of Scotland. Now, now, if Edward thought that Balliol would be some sort of puppet king, he was to be disappointed. In 1295, he signed an alliance with England's old enemy, France. This alliance, which is uh, called the Old Alliance, stated that France and Scotland would support each other if ever one of them was at war with England. And it was to, to basically survive for the rest of Scotland's independent history and built incredibly strong links between France and Scotland. Probably more often to France's advantage, but I guess that's debatable uh, and not one for today. The Old Alliance notwithstanding. In 1296, Edward had had enough of Balliol. He invaded Scotland, he, de he defeated Balliol and then he deposed him. And symbolically, just to show who was in charge, he took the Stone of Destiny upon which the Scottish kings had been crowned at Scone historically. He took that back to Westminster Abbey to sit under the coronation chair in England. And then finally, living up to his new nickname of Hammer of the Scots, he garrisoned various Scottish castles with English troops and brought English civil servants into Scotland. Although, incidentally, he made no attempt to actually annex the country or proclaim himself King of Scotland. Once more, Scotland was in complete chaos. And this English-enforced chaos was a step too far for the proud Scots. And just a year later, a rebellion in 1297, a rebellion broke out, led by William Wallace. Braveheart! Later that year, Wallace defeated the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Now, when I say defeated, annihilated would be a better term. The English lost something like 5,000 of their 9,000 army at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Wallace was now appointed guardian of Scotland in his own right, um, while they were trying to work out who would be the king. And he led raiding parties deep into Northern England. It was time for Edward I to take personal control again in Scotland. And marching from Berwick via Edinburgh, he surprised Wallace at Falkirk. Here the tables were turned and it was Wallace who tasted the bitter pill of defeat at the Battle of Falkirk. He was forced to relinquish his post as guardian of the realm uh, to two nobles who would share the role, one of whom was Robert Bruce. Yes, our man, he's on the scene at last. William Wallace remained at large, leading a diplomatic mission to France uh, the old, uh, in the Old Alliance. But in 1305, he was betrayed to the English. He was captured. He was taken to London. And there, Edward I ordered him to be hung, drawn and quartered. By 1306, the Guardian of the Realm, Robert Bruce, declared himself King of Scotland at the, uh, the royal coronation venue of Scone, minus the Stone of Destiny, of course. By now... Edward I was an old man of 67, but once more he took to the field. And once more the Scots were defeated and Robert the Bruce was forced to live as a fugitive in Western Scotland. And this is the moment where legend says that Robert the Bruce was hiding in a cave and was watching the spider spinning its web and was inspired, rather like the spider, to, to keep trying and trying and trying again. 
The following year, the old King of England, the Hammer of the Scots, died and was succeeded by his far from warlike son, Edward II. Remember, he was the one who, if history had turned out differently, would have married Margaret, Maid of Norway. Bruce seized this opportunity and he won a string of a series of victories. And by 1314, only Stirling Castle remained in English hands. Incredible turnaround in seven years. Finally, Edward II had to take some sort of action. And so he led an army of 15,000 into Scotland to relieve Stirling Castle. On the 23rd of June, 1314, a few miles south of Stirling, his huge army found their way blocked by the Scottish army under Robert Bruce, which was about a third of their size. What he didn't have in numbers, Bruce made up for in tactics. He had dug pits three foot deep filled with sharpened poles and he encouraged the English cavalry to charge. They charged his men and they went straight into these pits. This somewhat rattled the English army, in particular their elite cavalry. And in an attempt to outflank the Scots, Edward ordered his infantry to cross a tidal stream, the Bannock Burn. Exhausted from this effort of crossing the stream, the English army set up camp for the night. The next morning, the 24th of June, the English awoke to find themselves in a confined area with a stream on one side and the burn, or the bannock burn, on the other side and effectively coming behind them. And it was then, in that confined space, that the Scots launched their attack. Wary of more traps and unable to manoeuvre in the confined space, Edward's cavalry were effectively neutralised. And as the Scottish infantry charged into the English, the invaders suddenly found that that confined space meant that their superior numbers were useless. They were in a tight traffic jam. And as the Scots pressed home their attack, panic started to spread in the English army and they turned to flee, only to find out they were now in a tight tunnel trying to cross the Bannock Burn. The battle turned into a slaughter. It's estimated that the English lost well over 10,000 men, whilst Bruce lost just a couple of hundred. Edward fled for his life from the battlefield and Stirling Castle surrendered. Scotland was free from the English. You suddenly realise just why the Battle of Bannockburn is symbolically, politically and indeed militarily so important for the Scots. In 1320, nearly 50 Scottish nobles signed a letter to the Pope asking him to recognise Scottish independence and also to recognise Robert Bruce as their lawful king. This declaration of our broth stated, and I'll quote, As long as but a hundred of us remain alive, never will we on any condition be brought under English rule. It is in truth not for glory, nor riches, not or, nor honours that we are fighting, but for freedom. That is better than anything Mel Gibson shouted in Braveheart. And unlike the film, this declaration of independence is real. And this inspiring declaration of independence is 400 years before the equally inspiring American declaration of independence. As an aside, the declaration of our broth went on to tell the Pope in very religious terms, how St. Andrew had converted the Scots. And following this declaration, St. Andrew became the patron saint of Scotland. Although uh, the flag of St. Andrew was adopted by, as a Scottish symbol probably about 60 years later. So still very much in the Middle Ages. 
Finally, in 1328, the Treaty of Edinburgh was signed by Bruce and the Treaty of Northampton was signed by the new King of England, Edward III, and finally brought peace as the English once and for all gave up their claim to overlordship of Scotland. The joint treaties also agreed that the, uh, to the borders as they'd been established in Alexander's time. And as a sign of peace, it was agreed that Edward's sister, Edward III's sister, Joanna, would marry Bruce's son and heir, David. And with his life's work of independence done and peace secured, a year later, Robert the Bruce died and was succeeded by his son, King David II of Scotland. And here, our story might end, but not quite. Those of you who've heard my episode about the Hundred Years' War will recognise that Edward III was not like his father. He was more in the mould of Grandad Longshanks. And just like Edward I, he was ambitious and he was a warrior. Edward had come to the throne when he was just 14, after his father had been forced to abdicate. And he'd signed the Treaty of Northampton uh, in what was termed his minority. In other words, he was king, but he was too young to rule in his own right. So he had guardians, rather like Margaret, Maid of Norway, had earlier in this story. Well, his guardians were his mother, Queen Isabella, and her lover, Roger Mortimer. And the Treaty of well, Edinburgh and Northampton was their work, not his. And by 1332, Edward had reached his majority, in order he could rule in his own right, and he promptly reneged on the treaty with the Scots. He encouraged the son of John Balliol, remember him? <laughs> to invade and reclaim his father's lost throne. And Edward Balliol did just this. And in fact, he was actually crowned at Scone, but King David fought back. Edward was forced to enter Scotland with an English army to prop up his, his protégé. And the following year, at the Battle of Hallandon Hill, he defeated the Scots. King David was forced to fly in exile to their partner in the old alliance, France. And Edward Balliol was reinstalled on the throne. And Edward III of England took most of Lothian, sort of southeast Scotland, Edinburgh area, for England. Call it like a, I guess, like a, a giant finder's fee. Edward Balliol, however, was almost totally dependent on English military support to stay in power. And the problem was that Edward III of England had bigger fish than Scotland to fry. In 1337, he turned his attention to claiming the throne of France, and the Hundred Years' War began. See my separate episode all about that period in English history. With, with English attention and resources heading across the English Channel, Scots loyal to David uh, and the House of Bruce started to fight back. The resistance was led by the High Steward of Scotland, a man called Robert Stuart. The High Steward was one of the most senior roles in the country, controlling all the domestic administration of the royal household. Way back in the 12th century, 200 years beforehand, King David's namesake, David I, who'd invaded England in support of Matilda in her war with Stephen, uh, had given this role of High Steward of Scotland to a Breton nobleman named Walter Fitzalan. The title passed down through his family, uh, who changed the name to Stuart, until uh, David II's sister, Marjorie, married the sixth High Steward of Scotland, Walter Stuart. And it was their son, and so the exiled king's nephew, Robert, who was now leading the fight 
in what was to be called the Second War of Scottish Independence. By 1341, Robert Stuart had driven the English out of Scotland and Balliol was reduced to holding out in the southwest corner of Galloway until the 1350s. The victory of the High Steward of Scotland facilitated the return of King David from France. Meanwhile, uh, the French were having their own problems with the English. In 1346, Edward had launched an offensive in northern France, which resulted in the crushing English victory at Cressy. David wasn't just King of Scotland, part of the old alliance. He personally had been given sanctuary for nearly a decade uh, in France and therefore felt absolutely honour bound to assist them. And in the summer of 1346, he invaded England. Meeting with little resistance, he advanced as far south as Durham, where at the Battle of Neville's Cross, his army was defeated. He was injured in the face with an arrow and he was actually captured. And he was to spend the next 11 years in captivity in England. Finally, in 1157, a peace treaty was signed where the Scots agreed to pay a huge ransom in return for their king's freedom. Uh, David was released, he returned to Scotland and he continued to reign until uh, he died in 1371. With no children, the crown now passed to his nephew, the High Steward of Scotland, Robert. And so it was that Robert was crowned King Robert II and Scotland had a new royal family, the Stuarts. And we're going to hear a lot more about them in this British history.